What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast show. I am recording live from John Battelle's Shift Forum. And uh, I have another fascinating guest that I'm sitting with here today. This is Lynette Lopez, who is the senior finance correspondent at uh, a publication you may have heard of called Business Insider. Welcome, Lynette. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, I also met you at lunch today. So, you know, we have a theme here that a couple of other guests I've had on today. Um, we also talked about politics, which really wasn't something that uh, was First and foremost, although you have an interesting story here that we'll touch on in a second that does relate quite um, closely to politics, um, given some of your background. Um, you were at the Columbia's University, Columbia University School of Journalism, which is an incredibly prestigious university, so um, kudos on that. Um, you also do a, you contribute to Marketplace, I think, from time to time, which is part of American public media. And I mentioned that because I saw that in your bio and I listen to NPR in the morning all the time and American public media and NPR sort of share forces. So that was cool. But why don't we start with, um, you spent some early days with uh, New York State Senator Jeffrey Klein, who has had a lot of time in the news recently. And you had an interesting sort of prologue to that as we were getting up to speed. So tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, Jeff is one of the reasons why I decided to become a journalist, actually. Um, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. I went to Columbia undergrad as well, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to stay in New York. And I knew it was 2008. There was this feeling like everybody should be a little bit political and that there was about uh, a big change about to be um, to come about and and it was the same in New York state politics the republicans had controlled the state senate for some time and it seemed like the democrats could finally um change things in 2008 and we did uh we didn't hold on to it for long for horrible reasons that are not related but anyway uh i worked for jeff during that time i actually i think these these are related so we lost the majority because a man named Hiram Montserrat slashed his girlfriend across the face with a broken bottle and it was a caught on a security camera and he lost his seat. So obviously I was hanging out with some really great people that <laughs> could be great mentors to me in the future. Uh, no, uh, it was a, it was a cesspool. And um, Jeff, who I worked for, has risen up the ranks to become the head of something called the IDC, the Independent Democratic Caucus, which um, votes with the Republicans every now and then. So he tends to, he controls the legislature no matter what. And I, and I question whether um, he's the man for that job. Uh, all in all, though, what I did learn was that um, I didn't want to keep secrets like that. I didn't want to know what was going on with these people and not be able to tell anybody. I figured that if I became a journalist, I would be able to tell secrets. Um, but actually, now I know that as a journalist, I keep more secrets than I ever had in my life. But... Um, at least I get to be a little bit more strategic about it. Yeah, that is the irony of being someone that is a public storyteller but knows probably more secrets, secrets than anybody due to the nature of the confidentiality that people share with you. I do want to talk, though, um, you mentioned before you had your current role, you were an editor, the finance editor, and the fact that um, those two roles have blurred significantly over time. I think journalism has changed tremendously over the past 10 years just due to economic pressures and online, digital, all that good stuff. But let's talk a little bit about what your role as editor versus now correspondent journalist looks like and how editors, I think, are increasingly being forced 
forced to become journalists versus editors, if right. I've got that right. I, you know, I think a lot of editors in lean operations like Business Insider are forced into a player coach role. And it's a very exhausting situation. You know, you're editing, you're planning, and you're writing at the same time because this, the beast that we've created on the internet needs content. It's fed on content. All of it. I used to tell people I've got 20 uh, people would say, well, when can you run this? How long do you want it to be? I was like, I have 24 hours and seven days a week of news to fill. So whatever you got. Um, I took over Business Insider's finance site in 2011 when it seemed like no one else wanted to hear about the financial crisis anymore. Um, No one cared about JP Morgan earnings because they just simply were in a life or death situation. Um, and so I kind of had to expand our coverage and for the first time, you know, introduced the idea of covering men's lifestyle and New York nightlife and that angle of banker culture uh, to our site, which we've definitely, I think, taken and run with to the max. And I'm, I'm proud that I could kind of set our tone of of how that coverage for Business Insider would look like or sound like. Um and it was a it was a fun gig, but it was excruciating. You know, I was up at six thirty, handing out assignments, looking at the internet, and uh, I would um, stay until six thirty seven, then go out with sources because I was trying to build my own book of sources, and stay out to like you know possibly twelve and one. And and this is Wall Street. We weren't you know drinking milk and telling each other bedtime stories. You know, there were no there were no cookies and public service involved. Okay, so. Um, you know, it, it was really tough on me physically and um, becoming a correspondent and being able to go to events like this, have more freedom, personal time for myself and time to think. I don't, you know, I write mostly opinion and analysis pieces now and I don't think that I would have the time to think out the things that I think about if I were doing what I, what I used to be doing. So um, I think that this is something that we're all going to have to address when we think about quality control in journalism and when people wonder you know well where are all the editors well they're off being reporters half the time that's the answer (laughs) yeah it's not an easy job i'm sure Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're hot on right now like what's trendy in your world or what are you passionate about and then we will talk a little bit about your topic that you're speaking to tomorrow at uh everyone's talking about donald trump um and how can you not but i think that there are certain themes in business that i try to always keep present in the back of my mind um i don't consider my beat anything specific i consider my my beat is value um i am obsessed with tricking and scamming tricking is lobbying scamming is just stealing from the american people um, I, I, I see corporate graft everywhere. Some of my best sources are short sellers because they're some of the best, I think, investigative journalists there are in the world. They just happen to get paid more money for it. Um, surely, I mean, obviously any source you have to question their motivations and, and wonder where their information is coming from and do your own checking. But, um, what I'm, what I'm interested in now are, learning how to write in my in my own voice as strongly as possible, become a good opinion writer, and also understand the ins and outs of scamming and tricking. Scamming and tricking. Scamming and tricking. And I, and I, or as some people call it, um, I just did an interview with Jim Chanos, the best short seller in the world, bar none, and uh, he, you know, called it rent-seeking behavior. Um, it, it is corporate mo- monopolies, uh, suppressing competition so that they can, uh, you know, raise prices. If you if you have cable, 
um, this is that. It is the uh, opacity in pharmaceutical markets and drug pricing and um, the relationship between insurers, pharmacy benefit managers, and uh, drug manufacturers. Um, there, you know, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to healthcare in the United States because it's the only thing that has been inflationary since the financial crisis. Um, we're in a def deflationary world, and we have to wonder how it's possible that this one industry is causing Americans so much grief. Why? And where is all that money going? Um, we shouldn't be lighting it on fire the way we're doing, and the incentives in it are all wrong. So that's one of my, my one of my favorite places to look. Um, the opioid crisis is certainly an outgrowth of that, um, and understanding the, the the relationship between the opioid crisis, Medicare Part D, and and corporate greed is something that I think Americans um, don't get enough of. They kind of understand the ravages of that crisis, but they don't understand how it started, who started it, because there is a who, and and how they are getting away with it, because they are still. Um, so that's another obsession. My, my godfather always says, when I like something, I write about it. When I hate it, I write about it all the time. Um, well, I think liking or slash loving and hate are the... <laughs> Different sides of the same coin, right? You have to feel a passion for it one way or the other to actually enjoy it. Gosh, yeah. And I'm like, I'm that person in the back going, boo, this sucks. I don't know why. I was just born that way. Um, I think it's our, we're hardwired, right? So I'm from Boston originally. I'm a Red Sox fan. And there's a joke. Boo. Yeah, but so this is the thing. And this is what I've come to love because I'm assuming you're a Yankees fan, right? I, I, you know, actually I rooted for, the, I wrote my entrance essay into Columbia as an undergrad on the Red Sox-Yankees curse and how it reflects my Dominican-American heritage. I'm pretty sure this is how I got in. But I sided with the Red Sox in, the, in, in that in that moment in 2004. When they were the underdogs. Because how could you not? You had Pedro, you had Manny, and you had Big Poppy. It's like the holy trinity of Dominican baseball right there. Like, anyway. Well, so I, why I mention this, and I love <laughs> the fact that we've got this connection here now, is that there's a joke that uh, I love two teams, the Red Sox and anybody that's playing the Yankees. And I grew up hating the Yankees, particularly because up until 2004, they were our big brother that always, you know, stepped on our lunch or that bully at school. And then we finally overcame it. But why I say that is I think watching the World Series, if there are teams that I love or hate, I love to watch it. If it's teams and I'm like, eh, like the Washington Nationals, there's nothing against them, but they're boring. Right? Yeah, who cares? So they're playing someone like, I don't know, the... You know, Chicago Cubs, I couldn't care less because it's not very exciting. But if it's the Yankees versus anyone or Red Sox or, you know, whomever, then it's a lot more exciting. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, I mean, I watched this. I, I hate watched the Super Bowl and loved it because I can't stand the Pats. Sorry. I'm big Patriots. Fan, oh, of but, course. You but are. I appreciate the fact that, you know, everyone, if I was not from New England, I would hate the Patriots as well. I'm just glad we still have the city of Philadelphia. That's all. That is actually <laughs> remarkable that it did not burn to the ground. I mean, I, I think I saw a YouTube video of some guy picking up horse poop and eating it. And I was like, Philly is a is a is a place that I'm glad we still have. But I am going to I don't know how soon I'm going to go there. Well, the joke was <laughs> it was going to burn down whether they won or lost. Oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and we still have it. That's yeah, we all. do. And I that's, you know, I say that tongue in cheek to all my friends in Philadelphia. And we have some clients in Philadelphia. Um <laughs> 
They know. They do know. Well, they they're passionate. Know. They're crazy, right? That's yeah. that's the good thing. So let's let's bring it back to the event. You are speaking on a panel tomorrow. You're moderating it called "What's the Future of Tech." You have Kirsten Green, who's the founder and managing partner of Forerunner Ventures. She's brilliant. Eileen um, Lee, who's the founder and partner of Cowboy Ventures. Also brilliant. Best, best name. I'm trying to get her as my one of my podcast victims so you can uh, advocate for me. I will. Okay. Talk a little bit about um, what you're going to talk about tomorrow. And, you know, I'm assuming you did some prep for it. And what are some of the themes that you're going to sure. cover? Um, well, I want, I, you know, a lot of this uh, conference has been politically focused. So I want to start off with pure tech. What's really exciting, what these women see is the most exciting technology uh, and uh, trends or companies that they're looking at in 2018. Um, I want to see how their role in that has changed. And then let's talk about some of the more sore subjects. Um, you know, um, Eileen said something hilarious in an interview. She said, why would I want to give money to assholes? Or why would I want to make money for assholes? And uh, I, wanna, I want to ask her, you know, what is an asshole? In, in Silicon Valley in 2018 and how has that changed? Because you're, the, the Valley is going through a moment of reflection right now, um, whether it's because of privacy and Apple. Um, you know, Bill Gates made those comments uh, last week, two weeks ago, unclear. I don't know, it's a blur. By the um, time we put this up, it won't matter because it'll be sometime in the future. So nobody will be able to do the mental math. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, and the, those platforms being used by malicious actors. Um, and, and just in general, you know, how seriously are we taking this Me Too thing, this diversity thing? And do people really believe the rhetoric of this is an important change and we need to implement this in the Valley, or is it just getting lip service? Um, Can I ask you a question about that? So as a woman and a woman of color, how seriously are people taking that? Like, what's your perception? Is this something where you feel like, Obviously, there are some people that are taking very taking it very seriously, but there are probably a lot of people that are paying lip service to it as well. I think media is taking it fairly seriously. Um, Wall Street, no. Um, there, there. One thing is the banks, and then the other thing is the hedge funds and private equity firms. And you, you can't touch those people. You know, um, nobody talks about the fact that Ray Dalio, principals Ray Dalio, um, you know paid one of his female employees a million dollars because one of his deputies was sexually harassing her. Um, it was in the journal and no one, it, people blinked. They did nothing. And it's a, Wall Street is a very secretive place. It's a very um, take it to the grave kind of place. And, and I, don't, I don't see much happening there. Now, um, when it comes to the big banks, some of those banks are so HR'd out the wazoo that a lot of this, pro let me explain it this way. Uh, as, as my friend Sally Krawcheck likes to remind me, um, the women and the minorities were the first ones fired during the financial crisis. There isn't as much of a problem with women or minorities when you don't have as many of them around. And um, Wall Street is still trying to regain the diversity it had before 2008. Um, and you know, you can start as many panels as you want to, but it's just all about hiring them. Recently, you know, we, we learned that women at Barclays in London make sometimes half what their male counterparts make. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think Wall Street's doing much. Um, I've seen in media, you know, really talented people pay the consequences for and really talented, but 
you know, also kind of assholes. So that's another thing that everybody I think is trying to reconstruct in their brain. What is an asshole and what is tolerable behavior? And do we tolerate these assholes just because they're kind of good at their job? And are they maybe just kind of good at their job because they're the loudest assholes in the room? I love that answer. And (laughs) thank you for being so honest about that. It is, you know, it is something where um, I I am a husband and I have two daughters and something I think about sister, mom, you know, and respect the hell out of people I work with. And so I have been happy to see some change. It is sad that some industries, unfortunately, are uh, seemingly immune from that. Um, I do. I will say, by the way, I am thrilled. And this is a little bit kudos to John. But the fact that this future of tech panel is three women and as someone that runs a lot of events, I know how hard it is to get, you know, a balance of voices. And He's a super thoughtful guy. So he is shout out to John. Total shout out to John, who has been on this show before. Um, I do want to get into something a little less heavy, right? This has been great conversation. But uh, I like to ask three particular questions to all of my guests. And I always love to hear how they respond. The first is, and I'm really intrigued to hear what this will be from you. What's one thing that uh, people don't know about you that you're willing to share? Uh, I really love anime. Like, I really love it. Have since I was a kid. Still watch it. Have strong opinions about it. Um, I am a huge cartoon fan. I love cartoons. Adventure Time, Adventure Brothers. I watch a lot of cartoons. So, (laughs) I don't know whether you know this about someone or not, but I I would not, you don't strike me as an anime person. I've never quite understood it, but. I am a huge dork. Huge dork. I'm just, you know, I don't think I, I don't think I give off dork, but I'm a big dork. You don't give off dork, especially by your comments about having to stay out late night with sources and not drinking milk and eating cookies in New York City. I drink a gin martini up with a twist. See, that and anime don't necessarily feel like they go together, but this is what I love about <laughs> books. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a, tw- a different twist on this because usually I like to ask, you know, is there a book you've read recently? But over lunchtime, I brought up that I was listening to Fire and Fury, and you had an interesting side tale, and you've written about this, and I think we need to be careful about staying within the lines of sources and all that, but give us a little bit more um, about what we were talking about at lunch and Fire and Fury and some of the things that you found out about uh, meeting with Mr. Wolf, I think, for lunch or uh, at some social engagement. Yeah, okay. Um, can I give one book recommendation that I think is really oh, valid first? Sure. Um, I think that... I didn't want to steal that from you. I just was fascinated with the story, oh, so I sure, wanted to share yeah. um, uh, The book is All the Kremlin's Men by Mikhail Zygar. Uh, I think it's 2016. It's uh, The Court of Val- Vladimir Putin, and I think that it's really an important read for our times so that people understand the evolution of the politician that is Putin. There are there are not a lot of biographies about him for obvious reasons. We didn't even know he had kids until like five years ago. Um, and, and I think that people need to understand that this is a situation that has been... Um, it's not like magically Putin's a bad guy and he's always been a bad guy and he's always been the menace. That there's been a transition. He has changed as a politician and he has evolved and he has gotten darker. His ambitions have gotten larger. And, you know, we can stop Russia, I mean, easily if we have the will. It's not that powerful a country. Um, but I think that it's really important that we understand who we're dealing with and that we not be intimidated by the bots and the voices and the, you know, um, there's no reason to be scared. We just have to do. So anyway... Uh, in August, I had dinner with Michael Wolf in Washington at, at with Steve Bannon, one of Steve Bannon's deputies that appears in the book. 
Um, her name was a woman, by the way, which is yes, a little bit surprising. Yes, Al- Alexandra Priet. She uh, is described in the book as a socialite, which is unfair because she works very, very hard. You know, I have known Alexandra for, for, for years from Republican circles. She, she kind of uh, is a consultant who really strides, or at least she used to, and I think she's an incredible example of what has happened to the Republican Party. But her job used to be talking to guys on Wall Street who wrote books about finance, who wanted to get on Fox and talk to Republicans and sell their books about finance. She was the person who, communications-wise, strode the line between Wall Street and conservative media. And as conservative media became more radical, and she took on, she wanted to get the most powerful clients who were the hottest things in the biz, one day I get an email from her that says, do you want to interview Milo Yiannopoulos? This is not the Alexandra I know, Okay. Um, and my response was, was Elzia. No, it was oh, really, okay. no, 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 honey. I, I, I cover money. And when something goes wrong on wall street, you know, that's, it's for one of two reasons because somebody got too greedy or because somebody wanted to be right really badly. That's it. It's, it's a f- simple place. We're dealing with simple critters here. And, and when you're dealing with somebody like Milo, you're dealing with somebody who is twisted and crazy with insane motivations that are just I don't want to deal with in my life I I'm 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 the watcher on the wall making sure the economy doesn't collapse I don't need like some like frou-frou uh I think that I am a like Ken male Ken doll fascist Nazi dude having you know lunch with me I just don't need it so I told Alexandra well I could see the lunch part but I am thinking just in part of that I guess in retrospect is he's become such a bigger figure He's very much featured in the book. And so I share the same disdain as you for people like that. But I'm thinking he's become such a big figure. There's always something interesting about talking to people like that, regardless of how monstrous they are. Well, I said, fuck, 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 no. And I had to get nine in because I counted them. Nine. That's the most uh, uses of that word, I think, on the show, too. So you set a new record. I can't send this to my mom. You won't let your mom listen to this. So... I said, no, absolutely not. Um, I don't want to do this. But, you know, I've known Alexandra for many years, and she's always been a good friend. Um, and so when I went to, to D.C., shortly after Scaramucci was fired, because nobody knew who Scaramucci was. Who spoke at this conference, by the way, this morning. Yes, he reminded me that Steve Bannon thinks I'm the enemy. Um, so nobody, nobody really knew who he was in mainstream media. I've known Scaramucci for years. I've been attending his conference for years. I've met his, some of his kids. Um, I've seen karaoke at the, the Skybridge, uh, at the Skybridge holiday party. Um, you know, it, it, things certainly changed when he joined the Trump train. Um, and I remember when he did it actually, and this isn't a, a long piece that I wrote about him, but, um, when he, declared himself for Trump he did it by tweeting out pictures of himself on Air Trump Force One and so I called him while I was I was actually my 30th birthday and I was in New Orleans having a really calm dinner at Arnaud very peaceful very classy um and I was like dude what are you doing what are you doing this is crazy man you can't do this and he was like you know I was like you you go from Scott Walker to Bush now Trump I was like Anthony just stop just sit this one out and he goes you know when I was on Bush's team I was on the last bus after Bush's guys Bush's daddy's guys and Bush's brother's guys and now I get to be in the front of the bus 
and he he doesn't he didn't like that I put that in my story, but I did. Anyway, point is, um, CNN. Nobody knows who he is. This man has just made communications director, press secretary of the White House. The you know it's this is the the top communications job in the free world, and the man <laughs> has no experience in politics or communications whatsoever, and it is. Nobody knows who he is. So I get a call from CNN. I am constantly on, on television because Americans not only don't know who he is, but they don't understand what he does for a living or what his hedge fund business is. And, I, and I'll give you a hint. It's fees on fees. Anyway, point is, I plan a trip to D.C. so that I can go and, you know, do my digging and see what the Scaramucci regime is like. By the time I get there and plan my trip, Accordingly, he has been fired. <laughs> Best, what, three weeks of his life? Oh, my or? God, 11 days, 11 three days. weeks. Don't stretch it out. Um, so he, so I, you know, I was like, well, I guess I'm in D.C. for a week for, for no reason at all. So let me plan all these other meetings. And I called Alexandra and um, she was like, you know, I have a dinner tonight, but uh, why don't you come along? And I didn't know who was going to be in a dinner. And it was Michael Wolf. Who knew? Um, and to be completely fair, you know, there were a lot of people in the Steve Bannon world of that, um, of that, of the White House at that time who had to guide him. It wasn't her job to bring him around the White House. You know, he just got foisted on different people. So that it was her turn. And I realized quickly that he was given free reign to wander around the White House and, and months later when the White House pushed back and was like, this guy doesn't know anything, I was like, that is bullshit. You guys were telling him what Bannon was doing on the weekends, who everyone was having dinner with. He was allowed to roam around. He was he never wore a press badge, and that's the smartest thing. Shout out to Michael Wolf because whenever I go to a conference, I don't sit with the journalists, okay? I don't sit with the media. I always go in with the rest of the crowd. That's how you do it, but... You know, not in the White House and no sane White House would have somebody with his reputation within 70 miles. You know, it, it, it's, it's totally insane. So um, it, it was very apparent to me that he had convinced these people that he was going to write great things about them. And it was because of his relationship with Roger Ailes, who could not at who at that point was dead and could in a. Weirdly enough, I was at Scaramucci's conference in, in Las Vegas when Ailes died, and it was the weirdest feeling. Um, but, you know, he, he, Ailes had instilled this great confidence in Bannon because Ailes had the sense that Bannon was going to be the next bearer of the right-wing media, um, and which I don't think is true anymore. Um, and so there was this, there was this sense that the Mercers had ordained Bannon. And um, that meant that, you know, uh, Wolf was going to show him a certain amount of respect. And that Wolf, and honestly, all it took was really one article in The Hollywood Reporter. And I'll rem I remember when I read it. It was a profile that Wolf wrote about Bannon and his economic nationalism that I blogged about and was like, what the heck is that? Who, Michael, what, what do you know about the economy? Get out of here, bro. Um, and it was just obvious to me that he was going to backstab them. <laughs> he, it was August. And at that point he had to have been putting pen to paper. If not, I, I can't, you know, I don't know that for sure, but I, 
I imagine that he was writing by then, but he would not confirm or deny the idea that he was going to write a book. He was like, oh, I'll do something. I'm just hanging around. No, that man had a mission. He was, he was like, as the, Blue, as the Blues Brothers said, on a mission from Gad. Well, it's, uh, that's a fascinating story. And so uh, thank you for sharing that because, as, like I said, as someone that's listening to the audiobook right now and anyone that hasn't read the book, whether you like or hate Trump, it's it is a fascinating so story. It is crazy, truly. And I listened to the audiobook too. And I started like laughing out loud in my apartment because I was like, why does this sound like Arrested Development? It's like you can't make this shit up, right? You can't make it up. It was like it's like Donald's maybe like he's the dad in jail and no banana stands know. though in this one. I don't think right. No banana stands. The, the, no, actually, the Trump the Trump might fam- family might have money in a banana. That is true. Somewhere. I would not be shocked. I would not be shocked if they did. Um, and in fact, the 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 deal that they have that's coming under scrutiny right now is for a hotel in Panama that the Washington Post did a piece on today, but NBC and Reuters collaborated on a couple months ago. And it was basically giving you insight into how the Trumps do their projects. Um, and there was a lot of Russian money, some human traffickers involved, double selling of apartments, because what you kind of have to understand is that for the Trumps, if they can show that they have um, a certain amount of occupancy in their new buildings, they can get another line of credit. And how the Trumps exist is lines of credit. That's how you can appear rich without actually being that rich. And they, and they put a lot of money on their businesses. Now, the, one of the most interesting ways to understand them is to read the bankruptcy documents and the SEC documents for the bankruptcy of Trump Entertainment, which was the, the Trump's last public company, which went belly up in 2009 and then again in 2011. And um, when it went belly up in 2009, the Trumps convinced a judge to not get rid of the debt allow them to, you know, take on more debt. Um, and then the Trumps would give their names and likeness, Ivanka and, and Donald, to the, to the casino to use for free. Now, what was not free was the $250,000 worth of Trump water that the Trumps sold to the casino or the tens of thousands of dollars in use of the Trump helicopter or the Trump planes. That wasn't free. That cost money. And that's that's the kind of grifting we're talking about here. So um, the the Panama story is interesting because <laughs> NBC tracked down one of the guys that was doing the deal for the Trumps who is on the run from the Panamanian government. And uh, when they asked Ivanka about him, she's like, I've never I've never heard of that guy. I don't know who he is. He produced pictures of himself with the Trumps. And and now I think, you know, Mueller clearly has an interest in deals like this. Um, they, they can, they give you an insight into what kind of business these people were running and who their clients really were. Probably not the renters. Probably the people with the money who needed to, to go somewhere I have to say that's easily the most fascinating response to that question. So I love that we went down that path. Uh, we will end on what will now probably be an anticlimactic answer because that was such a fascinating answer. Uh, I do like to ask people, you're stuck on a deserted island. You can only take one album with you. Which album would that be and why? I hate. Um, that's why I ask and I know so people hate this hard. Um, Okay. I don't know. If middle, middle school Lynette would have taken pavement, bright in the corners... Um, 
This is the beauty is I can ask people about personal stories on Michael Wolf and Yiannopoulos and yet then I ask you a simple question and it's like... How is this a simple question? <laughs> it's just, the, what I really like to find out is it doesn't even really matter. It's just how do you think about it? And so, I, A, I love the fact that you answered with pavement. Did not see that coming for no other reason that that's a little bit like kind of deep alternative music that a lot of people don't know about. I know pavement and listen to them back in the day, but that's a good one. Yeah. That's a- that middle school and that would have, that's definitely would have been her jam. Um, I don't know. I think. Who's an earworm for you right now? We'll make it easier. Like who's you know, one song or one playlist or one artist that like you just can't stop listening to. Uh, uh, I've been listening to a lot of tennis lately and beach house. Um, I, <laughs> I listen to a lot of um, this French group called Parody. Um, I don't, I'm like, I'm a music so geek. We let you take your Spotify with you and we let you, you know, listen to some of these new ones because you gave us the answer of payment. So we'll let that oh, ride thank with you. that. Thank oh, you. God. Well, I have to say, this has definitely been one of the most interesting <laughs> journeys. And I've had a chance to talk to some very interesting, <laughs> including Brad Parscale, who is Trump's digital manager. Um, that was an uh, oh, he was here. One. He wasn't here. I got him at a different oh conference. Oh my god! That was a fascinating one. Uh, I'm gonna listen to that immediately. Okay, yeah, I, I I didn't go as hard on him as I probably could have, but it was an interesting conversation. So, anyway, this is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O Group, host of the What to Know podcast show. I've had a lot of fun, which I expected I would, with Lynette Lopez, who's the senior finance correspondent at Business Insider. Thank you so much for spending the time. Until they hear this podcast. Well, and then we'll, we'll just deny it. You say, I never did that podcast. That wasn't me. That's you know true. they can fake people's voices now, right? Well, you know what? It's 2018. You just deny, deny, deny in 2018. Fake That's news, game. my friend. Fake news. Thank you, Lynette. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.